Good morning. Um, I've been a pastor for 35 years, just over 35 years. And I have, well, sure, okay. <laughs> I made it. Um, I've, I've learned a lot of wisdom, mostly just by being observant to the world around me. I've uh, been part of and experienced some inexplicable miracles, and I have watched uh, entirely too many tragedies and watched people destroy their own lives. And in this last decade, there, there, there's been a single passage of Scripture that I have come to appreciate, I guess, understand, and even fear more than any other. And it is in the teachings of Jesus Christ, and he's talking about the nature of various souls and, and how uh, different souls have different levels of receptivity to truth. And so this is the third soil that he's talking about in Matthew chapter 13. And the seed falling on the, the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making him unfruitful. I have known so many men and women that once were enraptured by the joy of innocence, and they lost that innocence. And I've known some men and women that regularly experience the power of knowing God and serving Him, and and it cost, the loss of that cost them more than they had ever anticipated. And it wasn't because of some sudden decision. It wasn't something of a, a failure or maybe some kind of evil that kind of twisted them. It was because of this deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world. Deceitful, I love the word. Again, I'm appreciating this sentence more than ever before. It's tricky. It sneaks up on you. It doesn't just like pounce upon you. It slowly chokes out the spirit of health. It reminds me of, of this vine weed thing called kudzu, and it starts off slow and then grows and then takes over everything. The road to perdition is a very mild slope. And the power in the deceit and the power in the worry is in its subtlety. It just, <laughs> it has the power to take down a 300-year-old oak tree by surrounding it and choking out its light and its water and its nutrition. I have seen former youth interns and, and pastors. I've seen men and women of every field that were one-time idols and still are heroes, mentors, and they're gone. And it's because of this deceitfulness. It's this, it's this, this mild, throbbing worry of what the world thinks and who the world is. And, and I mean, how do you stop it from happening? Innocence must be maintained is the theme. And if, if we're using this vine or ivy, these thorns as a metaphor, as Jesus was, it has to be cut back early, often, constant, tirelessly, always maintaining. And so today we're going to look at, we're continuing our story in the United Kingdom period, and uh, up, we've just finished up, for the most part, 2 Samuel chapter 6 through 10, which is 
the hope of all Old Testament saints, Camelot. We have a righteous king serving a righteous country for the glory of God. They have a capital city. It's called the city of David. And now the higher the mountain, the lower the valley. And we're going to look at David and Bathsheba today. And what I want us to be focusing on is you know, the author of, of this story is a genius in storytelling. And so I want you to be looking for, he's going to use all of his narrative clues today. So look for introductions of scenes and characters. Look for the contrast and juxtaposition between two types of characters. And because this story is about one of his favorite themes, the reversal of fortune by an abuse of authority. The reversal of fortune by abuse of authority. The word of the day is sent. It's going to be used 23 times in chapters 10, 11, and 12 because that's the theme and the, the purpose of the word being used so often is to emphasize authority, the, the use and abuse of authority. These people have power, and whenever they get the power, they use that power to send. Think people that think they can play chess with other people's lives while God is distracted with something else. And so that's what we're looking at today. Those are some clues for you. Chapter 10 ends with another great victory by David. He beats up another set of bad guys. And then there's this transition that is taking place because all is well, you know, all is well. It, and um, if, if you look carefully, there's something growing underneath David's bed. It looks like a thorny vine because... In chapter 11, in one sentence, everything changes. In one sentence, this author is tipping us off to a clue that he's going to say in three different ways, David, get out of there. Get out. Look at verse 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. And in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent General Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, the capital. But David, in contrast, David remained, literally was sitting in Jerusalem. There's an ivy thorn. This is the first decision that David is making here, is to stay. There's an ivy thorn that's squirming around from his bed, reaching towards his ankle, and this author is saying, look what's happening here. Look at the repetition. He's saying, in the spring, when kings go to war, I've seen, in my experience, that there is a common theme, no matter the career, the gender, the circumstances of a person that falls like David's going to fall. One, they say, look at all the ministry that's taking place. Look at all that's going on in, with my influence for God. And then two, I'm the exception. I'm the exception. I don't have to hear the warnings that other people hear. I can either, one, burn both ends of the candle because I'm the exception, or two, I can sleep in. Look at all the ministry, look at all that's taking place, and I'm different than other people. And that's what that first part of the sentence is saying. In the spring, when kings go to war, and then it says David sent because he could. And he sent Joab, and he sent the military men, and he sent all the Israeli army. In other words, every single able-bodied man has left Jerusalem. All that's left is David and the women. Get out. 
3. It says, look at the verbs. Meanwhile, the men are destroying and besieging, and David is sitting in a palace in Jerusalem. David will be conquered on a different battlefield, on a field he was never supposed to be going, and he'll be choked out slowly. The next sentence says this, and then one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. Now watch how lust of the eyes becomes lust of the flesh, becomes the pride of life in his abuse of power. Three great categories of sin. He's going to do all. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. Oh, and that woman was very beautiful. Oh, okay. You can have her. Verse 3, and then David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, is it this Bathsheba, like the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, a servant speaking to a king, that's about as confrontational as you can get. Isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter? Let me tell you about this family of Bathsheba. Her father is Iliam. And in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, there's a list of what's called David's mighty men. And these are basically men who earned the Medal of Honor, the highest you know, medal that a person can earn. And Iliam is a war hero. That's, David, that's Bathsheba's father. Uriah, isn't she the, da- the wife of Uriah the Hittite? What does that tell you? One, that he's a Hittite. He is not even Jewish. He's converted to, to Judaism and loves the Lord. And he is in chapter 23. He's a war hero. He's a Medal of Honor recipient. How do you, you suppose they met in a foxhole? You know, one's an officer, one's an enlisted man. And he looks at Uriah and says, I have a wonderful girl that I'd like you to know. And Bathsheba's grandfather is later mentioned. His name is Ahithophel. He's David's counselor. He's like God's voice for David. So this must have been really some fantastic wedding where all the people there were people of, of, of note. Right? These, these, are, these are prominent families who love God and love serving God's nation. And they're all there together. So the point is, this is decision number two. This, this servant kind of pushes back a little bit and says, now, isn't that Bathsheba, you know, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of some other war hero, Uriah the Hittite? So it's decision time. David says, you know what? You're right. What am I doing here looking at a woman taking a bath that doesn't belong to me? What, why am I here instead of at a, in the battle? And then it's like, whoa, what's this on my ankle? Cut back the kudzu when it's young. Innocence must be maintained. That's his choice. Or verse 4, he could send. And then David sent messengers, and he took her. And she came to him, and he slept with her, and, he, and then she went back home. He sent for her because he could, because he can. He had a royal chariot go and pick her up, and she gets in and comes over, and his conscience is screaming, what are you doing? What are you doing, David? You shouldn't even be here. You shouldn't be looking at her. She shouldn't be on her way. And you know what he said? Shut up. Heal. And that's what it means to grieve the Spirit. 
That's what it means to quench the spirit. And just to make sure that we understand the way this is written, this is no affair. There's no mention of love. Her name isn't even mentioned by David. It is only mentioned one time, and that was by the servant who said, isn't this Bathsheba? She's the woman. He doesn't call her after the, after the event. He doesn't say, are things okay? Here's what Proverbs says about this. And this is the way the adulterous person, they eat and they wipe their mouth and say, I have done nothing wrong. The whole thing took 20 minutes. Sent her home. Move on. A month passed. Now she's sending. And the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I am pregnant. Decision number three. Uh Uh-oh. That was wrong. I got to make this right. I have to stop this, this road to perdition and I can't go on. This insanity has to end. My soul can no longer enjoy this. This vine is climbing its way up to my chest. Or double or nothing. Let's go. Let's see what I can do here. And so from this point on, please know this, from this point on, All decisions and activities that will be taking place will be for the preservation of David's sacred reputation. That other sin is behind him, and now it's the worries of the world. Now it's what other people think. And when people think you're this and you're this, really, that gap is called hypocrisy. And David's going to try to fill that gap in in any way he can. It's the worries of the world. When I was in, uh, working on my doctorate, I took a class called uh, crisis, The Pastor's Crisis Counselor. And so we were able to listen to the stories and even interview people that had their lives devastated in, generally speaking, by evil or by various hardships, with the exception of three cases. There were three people that chose to blow up their own life. One was a rather famous uh, preacher, pastor in, in Los Angeles. Thousands of people would come to church uh, each week, books, you know, very successful radio ministry. And the stress of success and the weekly demands of, you know, perfect sermons, those sorts of things were driving him insane. And one night, he saw a prostitute on a Saturday night, went on a drive to relieve stress, went to a prostitute and experienced an adrenaline rush like he never had in his life. Came home, went to church the next day, and he did that for a whole year and more. So you can imagine the first questions, right? How, how do you do that for over a year? There's a great proverb that says, stolen bread tastes sweet and then turns to gravel in your mouth. And when he got home, it had turned to gravel. And he didn't sleep that night of the first Saturday. And he resolved that he would walk up on that stage and tell the congregation what he had done. And he did. He walked up on that stage, and the lights hit him in the face. And then he gave the sermon he had planned to give. And he drove home that day and said to himself, I can do both. 
I can have Saturday night, and I can have Sunday morning. He even said, you know, I did a series on addiction, and it was one of my most popular series. People would come up to me and say, it's like you're reading my mind. And he said, I wasn't. I was reading my mind. He had to fill in that gap of who people thought he was with who he really was with a lie. And David, he's going to double down. David and the woman will conspire and use their ability to send and power, and they'll get Uriah to come in from the battle and lay with Bathsheba, and then the baby, hoping it's not a redhead like David, is going to look like it's his. And so that's what they do. This is David's descent into hell. This is going to continue to cost him more. The tuition goes up, and it's going to cost him more than he ever thought. This is the man that has been a spokesperson for the righteousness of God who defends the honor of God, and he's going to now put his hands behind his back and try to stare God down. This is a man who knows that a 10-foot giant is no match for the righteousness of God, and he thinks he knows better. David has gone insane. He's mad. It's the worries of the world. The deceitfulness of riches are starting to choke him. And so now, with David's royal power and abuse of authority, look how three times in one sentence, and then David sent this word to Joab, the general, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. And then David sits down with Uriah and says, so how's Joab? Don't care. How are the soldiers? I really don't care. And how's the war going? I, I, I really don't care. Now, that's awesome. Thanks for uh, reporting. Why don't you go home and take a shower? Just, just take the night off. Why don't you go home? And, t- and he sends Uriah out of the palace and literally sends him a gift, <laughs> like right, bubble bath or something. Go home and take a shower. Here's some bubble bath. So the, the plan is pretty simple, and it's statistically pro- uh, no, uh, no you know, fault thing where I'm just going to, there's a, a <laughs> picture, okay, a guy just coming off of combat for quite a period of time, shower up, go visit your wife, and she's waiting for you with open arms. David is betting everything on that he would take justly, Uriah, what David took unjustly. That what, Dave, what this man will do to break from the stress of war and enjoy his wife, David enjoyed illegitimately in a break from boredom. But how does this plan not work? Every soldier's going to go home and visit his wife. However, the best laid plans of mice and men in verse 9, however, Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all the master's servants and did not go to his house. Can you imagine the emotion that David is choking on in the next sentence? And then when David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked Uriah, haven't you just come home from a great distance? Why didn't you go home? Uh, okay, easy now, okay. And so that's, that's what verse 10, and now, by the way, this whole story has been exceptionally fast, and it's telling, it's, it's been terse. And now the author is going to slow down to show this comparison 
and juxtaposition and character. This is the, pretty much the longest sentence where Uriah is going to explain to the formerly righteous king why he didn't go home that day. And so this will be the fourth time that we hear that David was supposed to be at war and in the wrong place. So verse 11 says, Uriah told David, well, you know, I mean, the ark and Israel are staying in tents, and, and my master Joab and the Lord's men, they're all camped in open fields. So how could I go to a ha- my house and eat and drink and lay with my wife? As surely as you live, I would not do such a thing. Everyone of value and of courage and nobility are living in tents, not palaces. Oh, we're all sleeping on the ground, not on a bed. Right. So David says, why don't you stay one more day? You st- I'll tell you what, you stay one more day, and, uh, and then I'll send you back to combat where you want to be. And so, this is, so David does that, and he has him over for dinner, and he says, this is David's invitation. He ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. You do what the king says. But in the evening, in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master servants, and he didn't go home. And so the point of the irony is this contrast of character. This foreigner, this Hittite, is more righteous than the formerly righteous king. This out-of-towner, seven times his name is called, is mentioned that he's a Hittite. It's not even, it's like it's, it's his full name, Uriah the Hittite. Seven times it says Uriah the Hittite. David, God's giant killer. And the big theme of this, because there's two attempts here, the big point of this story is that Uriah drunk is more pious than David stone-cold sober. Fourth decision. David sees what's happening, and he says, I I quit. I quit. I can't take this anymore. Uriah, your righteous courage is crushing my conscience. I need to tell you what I've done. Please forgive me. I'll do whatever I have to do to make this right. Or I'm all in. And David does this, verse 14. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah, with Uriah. And in it, it wrote, put Uriah on the front line where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. And David knows that he can send this note and this will get done. This plan will work. And do you know why? Because he knows Uriah's character is trustworthy. And Uriah will not open this letter and read what it says because that's the kind of man Uriah is. He knows what kind of soldier Uriah is, that he's going to send, he's going to be sent, sent on a suicide mission and it'll be obvious and he'll do it anyway because he's a man that follows orders. He's a man that submits to authority. And that's what happens. Uriah does what he does. And verse 26, and when Uriah's wife heard what had happened to her husband that he was dead, she mourned for him. Remember the wedding, this is some kind of funeral. You picture this soldier's heroic funeral who was betrayed by his wife 
his, his ranking officer and his king. And his father, Ilium, is there, or his father-in-law, Ilium, is there, and he's in his dress formals, and his chest is racked with medals. And during the whole service, he's grinding his teeth because he knew it was a stupid mission, didn't have a point in it, and was out to just kill men for the fun of it. So he's not blinking. And the fellow soldiers, his band of brothers, they're weeping bitterly. And Ahithophel, he's the pastor on call. He's the one giving this service. He doesn't know how to make sense of it either. And then the closing prayer, and all the heads are down, and all the men are crying. And then two people look up, and in the corner of their eyes touch. David looking at Bathsheba, and Bathsheba looking back. And Joab looking at both of them. That's how the funeral went. That must have been some funeral. (laughs) Verse 27, And after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. They did it. It worked. They pulled it off. There were a lot of things that had to be decided, but you know what? That's what leadership is. You have to make hard decisions to keep your reputation to protect the things that the world enjoys. The worries of the world are over for him. He's good. He's all right with that. And um, they're going to live, I guess, okay. I don't know if you've noticed in this story in chapter 11 that there's someone that's been absent. There's been a name that hasn't been said that's a startling absence. Anyone? Jehovah. Jehovah's name isn't mentioned. And now it is. The last part of the last sentence. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of Jehovah. They didn't get away with this. And the new normal now is David's living with what is the decisions, the multiple decisions that he made. He's a little more restless at night. He drinks a lot more wine than he used to, and he gets to it sooner. But he can make this work for him. The lesson in this passage in chapter 11 is the high cost of sin, because what we'll see here is one sentence will be dedicated to the sin, and now the consequences are eight chapters deep. We're talking about a very small portion of one night and it leads to 10 years of, ministry, of misery. We're talking about a life that was built on the righteous courage of a young shepherd boy, and it will be destroyed by this series of decisions. But the lesson is, is people don't fall into sin. The lesson is, is that they slowly find themselves in a place they weren't meant to be, and they are choked out. It's the power of the deceitfulness of riches. It's the power of the worry of being in the world. And, and the real lesson here is that innocence must be maintained. Innocence must be maintained. There's a great quote that I stumbled across. It, it says, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It's kudzu. It starts small and then grows and then takes over and then kills everything. And so you, you don't start trimming when you see it strong enough to do something in response. In other words, it starts with values. Before decisions, there's these values that you're entertaining. These, these fantasies in your mind of revenge or on one-upping or of passion or lustful fantasies. It's, it's the entertainment of jealousy. It's the uh, dedication to envy. It's this commitment of self-absorption to your personal appearance and how people might think of you, right? Being pleased by the, being liked by the world, the worries of the world. That's how it happens. You, you need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And there is nothing so wonderful as a clear conscience. There's nothing so valuable. What would David trade to go back and have his boyish innocence returned. If you're asking the question, how did this happen? If you're asking the question, how did David the giant killer have his soul killed? How could this king, this man have done this? If you're asking how, you're missing the point. The question is when. When did this happen? On the rooftop, when he was restless and went for a walk? No, that's not when it happened. It, <laughs> it was mostly over at that point. When king, in the spring, when kings go out to battle and David stayed in Jerusalem, that's not when it happened. It happened when David's ego said to him, look at all that I've done for the Lord. Yeah, kind of lucky to have me. And then two, I'm the exception. I'm the guy that can burn the candle at both ends. Or I'm the guy that doesn't even have to work that hard anymore. That's when it happened. It happened when he entertained those thoughts. And on that first spring day, when everybody else was getting ready, that kudzu was coming up from underneath his bedpost and was grabbing him around the ankle. And when he was having that leisurely breakfast, when he should have been saddling up his horse, it had already made it up his legs to his chest. And then when he was on his balcony waving goodbye to the men he sent, Joab, and his army men and all the Israeli army, when he was waving to them, it was already around his throat. Friends, he was dead before dinner. That's why he couldn't sleep. This is a very powerful story about the abuse of authority. Innocence must be maintained. This isn't about adultery. This is about the cost of sin and where it starts. It's easier to crush an acorn than to try to cut down some old oak tree. Innocence must be maintained.
In this story, the abuse of authority and the use of authority is used by the word sent. David sent to find out about Bathsheba, and he sent for Bathsheba, and Bathsheba has a little power now, and so she sends a word to David that I'm pregnant, and then he sends a word to get Uriah, and he sends another message to have him killed. A lot of power going on. And that's how chapter 11 ends. And then chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said, you have to come back next week for that. (laughs) It's still a great story. I'm telling it like it is. Now it's God's turn. Now it's God's turn. We have to see what God's going to do to see if he can get David right, see if he can restore this man's innocence, see if he can bring him back and make him, make him white as snow. I hope today was appropriately scary for you. That sentence from Jesus has been scaring me for over 10 years. And the other soil, that third soil, chokes out all the fruit because of the deceitfulness of riches and the worries of the world. Let's maintain our innocence so we don't live with regret, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we can learn wisdom by watching other people. That some people destroy their lives through suffering because of pain and some because of success. And Lord, I'd ask that we would be weary of these things, this, the power of the deceit of wealth and the power of the worry of being like everyone else in the world. I'd ask that you would bless us with this wisdom that David learned the hard way. Nothing is so valuable as an innocent conscience a spirit turned towards you, where your spirit says to us, you obey. Your will be done, not our will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name.